You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. The UK's NCA and NCSC release a study of the cybercriminal underworld, hijack loaders' growing share of the C2C market, Russia's hacker diaspora in Turkey. My interview with author David Hunt discussing his new book, Irreducibly Complex Systems. In our Industry Voices segment, Mike Anderson from Netscope outlines the challenges of managing generative AI tools. And a senior Russian cyber diplomat warns against U.S. escalation in cyberspace. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel briefing for Monday, September 11th, 2023. The UK's National Cybersecurity Centre and National Crime Agency this morning published a report looking at ransomware's place in the cybercrime ecosystem and outlining the attack chain used by ransomware actors. The agencies think that a broad view of the ransomware landscape is necessary to address the problem more effectively. In some ways, the report argues, attribution is superficial. They state... While on the surface, an attack can be attributed to a piece of ransomware such as LockBit, the reality is more nuanced with a number of cybercriminal actors involved throughout the process. Tackling individual ransomware variants, something which the NCSC and NCA are frequently challenged on, is akin to treating the symptoms of an illness and is of limited use unless the underlying disease is addressed. Taking a more holistic view by understanding the elements of the wider ecosystem allows us to better target the threat actors further upstream, in addition to playing whack-a-mole with the ransomware groups. So, no whack-a-mole, says NCSC and NCA. Why is this? It's because cybercriminals aren't stupid, or at least not in a way that would tend to make them run afoul of the usual sanctions, indictments, and prosecutions. They rebrand, they modify code, and they distance themselves from the details of the original attacks. These simplistic measures are sometimes enough to keep them in business. 
The criminal-to-criminal markets facilitate this kind of dodging. As the report notes, each function can be conducted by a different threat actor and sold to each other as a service. It's also possible for gangs to vary their tools to use, in the report's language, different functions. And indeed, some functions are merely optional, useful in some cases but not others. The report recommends that organizations concentrate on the high-level attack paths and especially the methods by which the crooks gain initial access as opposed to the specific scoundrel at the keyboard. Leave that to the people with the badges. Of course, what's for sale in the C2C markets remains interesting. Researchers at Zscaler, for example, are warning about a new malware loader that's gained market share in the underground market. Hijack Loader, as it's known, has spiked in popularity over the past few months. The loader first emerged in July 2023 and is being used to deliver several malware families, including Danabot, System BC, and Redline Stealer. Zscaler notes, even though Hijack Loader does not contain advanced features, it is capable of using a variety of modules for code injection and execution since it uses a modular architecture a feature that most loaders do not have. The researchers add, We expect code improvements and further usage from more threat actors, especially to fill the void left by Imotet and Kakbot. Kaspersky discovered several malicious Telegram clones in the Google Play Store that appear to be designed to target Chinese-speaking users, particularly China's Uyghur population. The apps purport to be faster versions of the legitimate Telegram app and are capable of stealing the victim's entire correspondence, personal data, and contacts. Bleeping Computer notes that the apps have been downloaded more than 60,000 times. Google has since removed the apps from its Play Store. The Financial Times reports that among the many thousands of young military-aged men who skipped from Russia last fall to evade increased conscription were a large number of hackers, IT workers, and most significantly, cyber criminals. Turkey received several thousand such emigrants, and many of them have either connected with local Turkish gangs or formed small criminal groups themselves. Conditions for cyber criminals in Turkey are not as easy as they are in Russia, where cyber gangs operate with the connivance of the government. They enjoy no such official protection in Turkey, but hope to stay at large by keeping their crimes petty, by avoiding hitting targets in Turkey, and by keeping their trade as unobtrusive and evasive as possible. The expatriate criminal's preferred tool is Redline, commodity malware that nonetheless seems to evade widely used defensive software. It's most often downloaded inadvertently by people using illegal websites to play video games or pirated versions of popular software. The criminal take is retail-level stuff, passwords and other login credentials, as well as credit card data. It also includes stolen cookies, possession of which makes it easier to use the other data the thieves hold. The information is traded in an underground market researchers call the underground cloud of logs. The newly arrived Russians are said to have taught the existing Turkish cyber criminals how to make better use of their tools, and in particular how to organize their stolen data in ways that render them more attractive in the C2C markets. In an interview with Newsweek, Artur Lukmanov, director of the Russian Foreign Ministry's International Information Security Department, 
and special representative to President Vladimir Putin on international cooperation on information security, reiterated familiar Russian non-denial denials of Moscow's offensive cyber operations. U.S. allegations are accompanied by a lack of hard evidence, he says. So it's not much we didn't do it as where's your evidence, and beside, you're the guilty ones here. He described the U.S. national cybersecurity strategy as an inherent escalatory document that deeply implicates the U.S. government and U.S. corporations in preparations for cognitive warfare. He said, we want to halt further deterioration. A mistake in the use of ICTs may lead to a direct conflict, an all-out war, especially as the White House is aware that Russia has all the necessary capabilities to defend itself. A devastative computer attack against our critical information infrastructure will not be left without response. One of the principal lessons the U.S. has drawn from Russia's war is that effective cyber defense depends on international cooperation, and specifically upon cooperation among the public and private sectors of democracies. Breaking defense reports that Ambassador-at-Large Nate Fick told the Billington Cybersecurity Summit last week that a new strategy for promoting such cooperation was under preparation and that it would be circulated this fall. And finally, we'd be remiss if we didn't close with a brief remembrance of the terrorism of 9-11, now 22 years in the past. Join us in sparing a thought for those who suffered and died in the attacks and their aftermath. And also, when you can, reach out to those who mourn or care for them. Sometimes the best thing you can do for grief is simply listen. Coming up after the break, my interview with author David Hunt discussing his new book, Irreducibly Complex Systems, an introduction to continuous security testing. In our Industry Voices segment, Mike Anderson from Netscope outlines the challenges of managing generative AI tools. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. 
Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Mike Anderson is Chief Digital and Information Officer at Netscope, with over 25 years of experience in the industry. In this sponsored Industry Voices segment, I ask Mike Anderson about the proliferation of generative AI tools and how organizations can balance the utility of these tools against the potential security risks they present. There's a lot of conversation from the boardroom down around how is Gene AI going to uh, impact how we operate as an organization, what skills is it going to require, what skills, what, you know, what positions may be impacted, which ones may not be impacted. And so there's a lot of conversation is we can't block it from, from people using in our organization. In fact, that's a very daunting task for most companies because every week we're seeing three to five new startups that are coming out building on top of you know, the existing platforms like the OpenAI, Gen, the ChatGPT, BARD, uh, and others. And so you've got, you've got that aspect of it. But at the same time, there's lots of concern around, are people you know, uploading sensitive information into public models? How do we make sure we distinguish between a public model and a private model? And so there's a lot of questions and governance type things that people are talking about today, because they definitely want to say, how do we safely enable you know, generative AI in our organizations, but at the same time, you know, stay on top of the, the changes that are going on globally uh, as well. And how do you suppose an organization can come at striking that balance between the, the usefulness of these tools, but the, those legitimate concerns as well? Yeah, so what I'm seeing a lot of my, my peers doing in the industry is they're, they're paying for opening up some of the new paid models from, you know, providers, whether it's a Google or a Microsoft they're buying licenses now for their employees to give them a safe place to go innovate versus, you know, some of the, the free models. You know, if we think about ChatGPT, you know, we have the free model where things get uploaded uh, into the public large language models. Uh, and then we've got our private ones where we with the data is contained within our environment. The challenge is really that creates a good framework, but then there's so many of these new applications popping up. I and mean, Grammarly is a great example. It's very difficult to distinguish between a paid Grammarly subscription and a free subscription. And so because we can't distinguish, we block that from our users using that platform until we get to the point where we can distinguish. Because what we don't want is effectively a keylogger logging all the interactions our users are having um, and having that information go into a public large language model. And so that's a... Uh, so a lot of it is give people a place to go and experiment in a safe way um, versus outright blocking. So where do organizations stand when it comes to addressing things like data governance and, and consent management? Um, that's a great question. What I see people doing today is one is they're looking at the lineage of data. For example, there was a, a case that came up recently in in. Um, case law with a judge where an attorney had basically gone through and searched for a brief to or a, a precedent to basically support a claim they were making, and they used generative AI. You know, so from a data governance standpoint, one of the things we're, we're seeing is people trying to make sure there's a good lineage of where did data come from, what's the source, the attribution 
of the data is key because we can't just rely on things in a public large language model because it's sourcing data from the entire internet. It's scanning everything. And so there was a good example recently in a courtroom where an attorney basically used information from ChatGPT to support what they were, their claim they were trying to make, but the data was actually from something that was fictitious, not something that was real. Mm. And so that starts to bring um, concern where we're actually seeing in law rooms where in courtrooms where people have to cite their their evidence, they have to attribute where that information came from, and they have to actually say, did they use generative AI in any form and anything to do from a legal standpoint to make sure that it's, it stands up? And so when we think about data governance, it's that lineage, what, how, where did that data come from? How is it attributed? So with it, when decisions are being made, especially even on private models, how can I make sure that I trust the information that's coming from it to make a business decision? And so oftentimes, you know, to help temper expectations today around kind of where we're at, what you see is um, some of my peers are giving questions to their board members and their C-suite to say, go to some of these chat GPT or some of these public models and ask the following questions and look at the answers you get. And, and they're questions that all the boardroom members and all the C-suite would know the answers to, to compare is the answer accurate or not. And it's a good way to, to level set expectations um, from a, when you really think about the governance of data that's used to make these decisions. And so, you know, I find that to be a very good place, but I feel like, you know, we're at the beginning, but this is a truly transformational moment in technology. I, I correlate it to, you know, when we saw the iPhone introduced in 2007, we're at that point now with generative AI where we're at just at the beginning um, and everyone's really trying to put the structures around it um, in real time. What about the, the communications channels themselves? You know, the securing uh, that pathway between the user and these large language models. Yeah, so the the ones where you're going directly to the you know the tool, the Chat GPT, those are the easier ones to address. Where it becomes more complicated is this world of third party plugins we see within whether it's Microsoft or Google or Salesforce, any of our our key SaaS applications that we leverage today. We have the ability to plug in various, you know, uh, add-ons. We see it in the browser world. If we look at Google Chrome, I can download add-ons for my Google Chrome browser. And so it's those type of plugins where I feel like we have more heartburn because they're harder to detect. And so it really comes into this whole conversation around third-party risk. And that's another area where we're also using some of our own technology. Uh, we just announced here recently the ability from a from a SaaS security posture management standpoint the ability to identify all the different plugins that people are trying to use and assess risk against those. So we've cataloged over 70,000 applications, each with their own individual risk scores. And so then we can apply that same risk scoring to those third-party plugins that people are trying to use, whether it's a browser or it's something that plugs directly into a Teams or a Slack or equivalent type tool we're using today within our organizations. What are your recommendations for organizations who are, are just getting started on this journey? They, they realize and recognize the power of these tools, but perhaps they're feeling a little overwhelmed at, at getting a handle on securing them. Do you have a suggestion for where to begin and, and what pathway to take? Well, selfishly, you know, we want everyone to take a look at Netscope because we use our own technology and feel pretty good about how we're managing these things internally. What I always recommend to people is give people a safe, realize that you're not going to block it. I mean, if I go back to the 90s before we had email that could work outside of our organizations, you know, we saw the consumerization of IT. So email, so when the free email platforms came out like Yahoo Mail, 
uh, back in the in the late '90s. What we saw is people would forward their work email to their personal email so they could get access to it at home, and that for, was a forcing function for organizations and to open up email so people could access it from outside the four walls of their organization. And so we're seeing the same thing happen today when we think about generative AI and we think about other uh, examples like that. What we need to do is give people a safe place to go experiment. You know, so if we outright blocking is not a, is not a good strategy. So how do we give people that safe sandbox, educate them, and I always say, give people a license to go fishing, right? But make sure they're fishing in the right place with the right equipment um, so when they when they get something on the line and they reel it in, we we have a, a positive outcome versus perhaps a negative outcome. And so hmm. you know, put the right guardrails and give people the license to experiment, but but help them understand the right place to experiment. Um, and then use tools that are out there in the market today to basically police those that third party component we spoke about around those third party plugins. But then also to make sure we're protecting and guiding our users and giving them that GPS or that compass. Um, to make sure they know where to go, where not to go, what to do and not to do in real time. And don't just rely on someone reading something or attending a webinar internally, which we know people have to hear things 27 times before they remember it. Um, so let's make sure and remind them every time so it starts to become you know, brainstem for all of our users. That's Mike Anderson from Netscope. David Hunt is co-founder and CTO at Prelude Security and author of the new book, Irreducibly Complex Systems, an introduction to continuous security testing. David Hunt has worked at organizations like MITRE, Mandiant, John Deere, and the U.S. government. While at MITRE, he designed and built the Caldera Framework, an open-source tool for conducting semi-autonomous purple team assessments. Our conversation begins with him describing his motivation for writing the book. Yeah, I've been in the security space for, I guess, about 17 years now, and I've done a lot of writing on the topic, and I've kind of bounced between public and private sector in terms of red teaming and offensive security, and I've kind of seen a shift in the last, I don't know, 6, 12, 18 months in how security testing is is happening across different organizations, and watching that trend happen and then kind of like really feeling it through my daily work um, I wanted to get that down on paper. And so I think it's a it's pushing against the grain in a lot of ways in terms of what has been done in security testing, the idea of continuously testing your security. And I wanted to get that down on paper and uh, kind of give an explanation of where I see that trend going and kind of some of the technical reasoning as to how we got there. Well, can you help us with a definition here? How do you describe continuous security testing? The way I like to describe it is repeatedly testing if your defenses are capable of defending against emerging threats. And so uh, maybe a more understandable way of, of saying that is, as we read the news and we see different attacks occurring, we've talked a lot about the move at vulnerability over the last couple of months. The question always comes down to, could this happen to me? Am I vulnerable to this actual attack? And the idea behind continuous security testing is around the clock to be able to test each one of your security controls for that particular vulnerability. So even if you don't have it today, if it popped up tomorrow, you would understand how your defense reacted to it. And what are the advantages of adopting this kind of system? It's really information and intelligence early on. 
And so when we look at what we've done in red teaming in the past, we are able to create intelligence, but it's point in time. And so we might, taking the move it example, we might see that we have a vulnerability that's move it. We understand that at this point in time, we have that vulnerability, but we lose sight of that next month, the month after that, and so forth. When you're running tests continuously, what you start to realize is you're able to regression test an entire production infrastructure. So it doesn't matter when the vulnerability comes into your environment or if it goes away and comes back, you actually have a heartbeat the entire time. Can you give us some examples here of of how this actually works in practice? So there's uh, like a lot of security testing, it's two parts. And so what you want in continuous security testing is you want one part that's a what's called a probe or an agent. And when you deploy those out on your endpoints, so things like computers, servers, containers, and so forth, those things create a persistent connection back to what you would refer to as your command and control center. That command and control center is basically an automated scheduler. And so what the behavior that you want in the real world is you want to set your command and control center up where it can schedule out tests on a repeated basis to all of your endpoints. And as these endpoints retrieve tests, they execute them and spit the results back to the command and control center where that those results can be aggregated. And how do you ensure that in this process you're, you're going to do no harm? That's one of the biggest tenets that I go into in the book is continuous security testing needs to do no harm. That harm, I think, is most obviously represented in the tests themselves, making sure that the tests cannot actually create a negative effect on the host. Because continuous security testing is designed to run in production and across all your devices, it introduces that as a potential risk. So the way that I describe this in the book is each one of the tests should have guardrails built in. So the tests themselves, for example, can be limited based on the amount of runtime that you give them. I like 10 seconds. So you try to accomplish everything that you need to accomplish in the test within 10 seconds. Another guardrail that's pretty popular is verification of where the test comes from. So each one of these endpoint probes that you can deploy inside of your environment should have the ability to verify the test is coming from a location that you approve. That avoids any sort of man-in-the-middle attacks, which would be one of the biggest threat vectors uh, to a system like this. Well, and then how do organizations take the information that they've gathered here and turn that into some sort of actionable strategy? That is a great question, because this is also one of the biggest changes in continuous security testing that I go into in the book. The way, and I like to describe it from kind of where we're coming from with security testing, Where we're coming from is a world where we run security tests and then we have a security engineer or a red teamer contextualize what those results are in order to determine what to do remediation-wise. And so, for example, you would run a test from the terminal, you would look at the terminal output, and you would say, hey, these IP addresses have specific ports open that have a vulnerability, therefore based on my knowledge and and ability to contextualize the terminal output, here's what I would do. Now, that doesn't scale really well beyond a couple of people inside of a smaller environment. So continuous security testing takes a much more production-ready type of approach. And what continuous security testing emphasizes is a simple result code, an exit code, be returned for every test. So when you run an actual test, the output 
the terminal output is disregarded and a particular exit code is sent off of the endpoint and to your command and control center. Now it's the aggregate amount of those exit codes that tell the picture and do the contextualizing for you in a very automated way. So for example, one exit code might be 105. 105 might be quarantined test. That would indicate that a defensive control, say an EDR, quarantined the security test while it was running. That'd be a good thing. You want the defense to to quarantine bad things. And so at scale, you're able to collect all of those codes for all of these tests and build basically a giant heat map of what your environment looks like at any time. That's David Hunt from Prelude Security. The book is titled Irreducibly Complex Systems, an introduction to continuous security testing. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast where I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The CyberWire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. 
please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.